it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello and welcome to Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. I'm your host, Torella. And I'm your better, prettier, younger host, Tori. We're sisters who are obsessed with true crime and love gal palin with you about cases. You can expect the occasional curse word, lots of friends quotes, and all the 90s nostalgia. To get in on the conversation, check us out at killerqueenspodcast.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at Killer Queens Podcast. And we're on YouTube at Killer Queens, a true crime podcast. Okay, y'all, grab your Capri Suns or your Surge and let's talk about some true crime. Oh my gosh. Bitchin'. That, right? Was terrifying. <laughs> yeah. Not the way that you meant it to be, but it was terrifying. Mm, okay, I gotcha. Well, terrifying, I'll take it because it's Halloween. <laughs> and that's what Halloween. we're supposed to do. Bitches. Bitches. All right. So, you know, welcome back to Killer Queens. If you're not, if we didn't scare you off already. <laughs> this is our, our Halloween episode. I know, it's much like your favorite Halloween episodes from like Family Matters or <laughs> Step by Step. But this one's got a lot more cursing and a lot more murder. Yes, a lot more of that. And a little bit of Exorcist. Oh, so, you know, all right, all right yeah. This is going to be, the case is Paul Bateson, which you know that because you clicked on it, but uh, he's the perpetrator. So our victim that we're going to spend most of the time talking about is Addison Verrill. And it's something that I don't think is widely known. I don't think it's like a super well-known case. I've never heard it before. I haven't either. was going to lie and pretend like I had if you had, but <laughs> fessed up, I'm going to say it too. I haven't. Yeah, no, we, we keep it. We try to keep it honest over here, you know? <laughs> but I think it's, I do think it's cool to, and you know what I mean by cool, but like, it's interesting to find cases that we haven't heard of instead of just the same old stuff. like. Yeah, definitely. You know, but before we get to the case, of course, if you want bonus episodes, extra episodes, we also did the, our mixtape this past week was about the, I forget his name now, but the guy who poisoned the candy on Halloween and his oh, yeah. son. Oh, and his son <laughs> passed away from it. And we also have all kinds of bonus episodes. We're covering. I guess by now we're covering The Devil You Know, which is a mm-hmm. by show documentary. Just got through with Filthy Rich. Yep. We did the and Jinx. Yes. And if that's not good enough for you, there's also ad-free content. So you can listen to everything completely ad-free over on the Patreon. Bingo bongo. That's right. So check it out. And uh, you know, without further ado, let's jump into it. On September 14th, 1977, film critic for Variety, Addison Verrill, was out for the night. 
Beryl was a gay man and was out at a local gay bar called Badlands. That's a cool bar name. It really is. I think I've heard of it before. Really? Or I made that up. Well, one of the two. Yeah, it's got to be one of the two. 50-50 shot. Mm -hmm. While he was there, he offered to buy a man a drink. The man would introduce himself as Paul Bateson. Beryl and Bateson drank beer and snorted cocaine. They smoked weed and inhaled amyl nitrite, which is a medication prescribed for hypertension to relieve the pain of angina attacks, which is chest pain as a symptom of coronary artery disease. But it's frequently abused as an inhalant in an attempt to get high by causing a psychoactive effect and improving sex called poppers. Oh, this is poppers. Okay. I've definitely heard of poppers before. I didn't know what that was. This night took a turn. Because I'm like, oh, that's sweet. They're just, you know, having beers, having fun. Who hasn't done that? And then we introduce cocaine, weed, and poppers. That's a lot of shit to put in your body at one time. I mean, I guess you have to work your way up to that. I would think. I would only do a little, very little. Yeah, like, I can't imagine, like, going out one night and being like, hey, guys, um... I haven't really drank in about five years now, six years maybe. Um, I'm going to go ahead and drink a lot of stuff. I'll snort a little Coke. I'll do a few poppers. I'll smoke a bunch of weed. Like, I think I would die. Yeah. So you, you definitely die. I think you got to be in shape for that. But I've definitely heard of poppers and didn't know what they were. Yeah. We're learning a lot today. Yeah. Everybody's learning something. Oh, P.S. Thank you to Sloan for the research. We love you, boo. Always. Always. Yes. The men left the Badlands together around 3 a.m. They took a taxi to another bar called Mineshaft. This is a hell of a night. Really cool <laughs> bars, though. I know. Mineshaft. That's fun. And like that. dangerous sounding. Yes. Yeah. It does sound dangerous. Bateson was surprised that people were coming up to Veril like he was a superstar. He liked Veril and wanted to leave Mineshaft. He wanted to go home with him and have, quote, more than unilateral sex at the shaft. What does that mean? I don't know what unilateral sex means. I'm going to look it up. I'm kind of nervous, though. <laughs> unilateral sex. Veril was a little reluctant only because he knew he had to get up early and work. But eventually, at about 5 a.m., the two got a taxi and headed to Veril's studio apartment on Horatio Street. 5 a.m. What time is getting up early? Exactly. Nine? Because this is five. Yeah, that's impressive. Once they were inside the 17th floor apartment, they drank two bottles of scotch. Wow. <laughs> Just like scotch, scotch, scotch. I'm, I'm mind blown. Yeah, that's, they, that's a hell of a night. Yeah. They did some more coke and then they had sex around 7.30 a.m. When they finished, Bateson realized that while... He hadn't wanted just one-way sex. That's all Veril wanted. He realized that this... Oh, wait. What? Was, is, is unilateral sex... Or unilateral sex is when, if it's two gay men, one person is giving, one person is receiving. Maybe he wanted to give and receive. Okay, okay. Is that what that would mean? Because when he says it was he hadn't wanted just one-way sex. But that's all Veril wanted. But then he says he realized that this wasn't going to be a relationship beyond this point, and it was something that Bateson desperately wanted, according to him. Once it occurred to Bateson that he isn't going to get a relationship out of this, he got mad. Instead of taking his rage and doing the walk of shame like most people, Paul Bateson took a heavy iron skillet and, like something out of Looney Tunes, bashed Addison Beryl in the head. 
Once Farrell was unconscious and his head was sufficiently caved in, God, God. holy shit. Dude, an iron skillet? Holy fuck. Mm -mm. Bateson got a kitchen knife and stabbed Farrell in the chest. What a temper tantrum in the worst fucking way. I know, right? Like, what are you, a little baby? You think you're going to go meet a guy at a bar and they're going to get married or some shit? Like, well, and just because you want it doesn't mean you're going to fucking get it. Like, get over yourself. Yeah, like you meet somebody at a bar and you're drinking and you go home that same night. Like, I'm totally fine with it. Probably not going to result in a relationship. It's rare that that happens. It's usually like, okay, thank you so much. That was fun. I don't need to get your number. Let's be real. Yeah, exactly. Like, let's call it what it is. Yeah. Just a one-time thing. Mm-hmm. And but, a lot of times people prefer it that way. Well, yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, sometimes you're just not looking for something serious. Exactly. Then Bateson went through Varel's things and stole $57, his MasterCard, his passport, and some clothes. He left the apartment and spent the money on booze and drugs. Bateson would spend that entire day drunk and high, but he was used to this. He might also not have been a stranger to murder. You may know his name and you may not realize you've seen him before, but since most of us true crime fans also watch horror movies, (laughs) and Sloan wrote, except Weenie Torella, and you're damn right, I don't watch them, (laughs) you've probably seen him. So he actually was an extra in The Exorcist? A little film that, I mean, I don't know if you've heard of it or not. Not a big deal. Um, Yeah, I think it sounds familiar. I don't know. Yeah, I've not seen it, of course. (laughs) So, But I've heard of it, and I know enough about it to know that I'm fucking not watching it. (laughs) There's not a whole lot of information on Paul Bateson. He was born on August 24th, 1940 in Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Sources say that he was the son of a metallurgist, which is an engineer who studies metals and then uses their knowledge of the metals to find practical applications for them. That sounds smart as fuck. Yeah, it does. I don't even understand the definition of it. (laughs) Exactly. However, Bateson later told a reporter that his dad had been an orchestra leader. Maybe mom was a metallurgist and was just really ahead of her time for being in this field. It's, I mean, cases like this, it's so hard because you get like one snippet of a newspaper article. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Just, yeah, it's almost as bad as early snaps. (laughs) Right. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. And shocker, in the 60s, Bateson joined the army. He was stationed in Germany during part of his time and was apparently not very busy with military work because he became an alcoholic, quote-unquote, out of boredom. Once he was discharged from the military, Bateson went home to Lansdale and stopped drinking. That is until he moved to New York in 1964. Once there, he started drinking again and started a relationship with a man who, according to Bateson, was, quote-unquote, involved in music. During this musical relationship, Bateson experienced a few tragedies. First, his mom suffered a massive stroke and died. Then Bateson's brother died by suicide. Four years after his mom's death, Bateson's relationship with the musician ended, and he moved to Borough Park in Brooklyn. He got a job in Manhattan at New York University Medical Center, NYUMC. You know, acronyms. Sure, yes, sure. of course. Bateson was working as an x-ray technician there in 1972 when a director named William Friedkin came to the hospital doing research for his current project, which was The Exorcist. The movie was to be based on a book of the same name that was actually based on a true story of a little boy who was said to be possessed by a demon. The boy was changed to a girl for the book to protect the family. Friedkin needed the lead actress, Linda Blair, who played Reagan, to undergo a medical procedure to rule out medical causes for the things that were going on with her, and he needed to find a procedure fitting for a horror movie. He was wandering the hospital at a time when privacy and HIPAA weren't a thing, and he came across the radiology department where someone was undergoing an angiogram. I don't feel like that's a procedure somebody should just walk into. <laughs> like, <laughs> what's going on in here? <laughs> yeah, like, what the fuck? <laughs> oh my God. You just like leave doors open. You're like, hey, can I watch the surgery? <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> so an angiogram is a diagnostic test where an x-ray takes pictures of the blood vessels. And in this test, a needle and long flexible catheter are inserted into the main artery of the leg the femoral artery, or arm, radial, or ulnar, generally and threaded to the aorta, and dye is injected into the patient's artery so that an x-ray can be done and doctors can clearly see the blood vessels. This is so needs to be sterile environment. Like, I don't, I do not appreciate Friedkin being like, well, I'm a movie guy, so I'm just gonna bust up in here. That's fine. (laughs) Maybe he watched it through a window or something and wasn't actually in the room. I don't know. (laughs) Friedkin walked up, on this as the needle was going into the patient and arterial blood shot out and he knew this was the procedure he needed. In what way is an angiogram going to fucking tell you if a demon is inside a girl's body or not? Well, Charlotte, you've never studied demons and medical procedures, have you? So I'll tell you, you where they know. are. They're in the soul, okay? So what x-ray shows you somebody's soul? An angiogram. <laughs> Pay attention. This oh my is God, what you're shows right. you. <laughs> I, guess, I guess you're right. You're right, you're right. In this wandering of the hospital, he gained at least one extra, which was Paul Bateson. Bateson would have a small, minimal speaking role in what is called one of the most famous scenes from the greatest horror movie of all time. Why is this such a big scene? Does something crazy happen in it? I have no idea. I've seen this movie, but I I mean, I didn't memorize it, so I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. But okay, so it's just 
he lucked out, right? Like he was at work. Right place, right time. Yeah. The guy came in and was like, boom, you're my guy. You're going to, and he, like, he actually is in the movie as if they're doing this procedure. So, I mean, that's cool for him. Yeah, for sure. The Exorcist, much like the 1982 movie Poltergeist, I have seen Poltergeist and I probably yes, made I you, you <laughs> probably made you go to the bathroom with me for a year after that. I know you did. <laughs> yeah. You're like, I know exactly when you saw it. I remember how many nights I had to stay awake because of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. But the movie Poltergeist had its horrors for the people on set. Ellen Burstyn, also starred in Divine Secrets of the Yaya Sisterhood as Sita's mom, among other things, played the mother of Reagan, who, again, was played by Linda Blair, a young girl who was demonstrating symptoms of demonic possession. In the movie, the actresses and actors are often in very physically demanding situations. Burstyn suffered a permanent spinal injury during a scene where she gets thrown from her bed and her actual screams of pain can be heard in the movie. I am getting chills. Oh my God, that is so horrible. It's terrible. Like, what happened to stunt doubles? I know, right? Linda Blair also received a back injury when she was thrown from her bed and the rigging broke. Oof. The home where the- She was so young. Yeah, she was very young. That's a long time to have a back injury like that. That sucks. The home where the movie was set caught fire and destroyed when a pigeon got into the circuit box. Golly, that's poor pigeon. I know. And yet, oddly, the room that was Reagan's was almost completely untouched. I don't like this at all. I actually, we're canceling this episode. <laughs> There's too much scary shit. And cursed, yeah. I know. I'm like, what if we talk about it enough and we get possessed? Look at what we did. That's, we watched the VHS not, tape or whatever. <laughs> it's not how it works. It's fine. It's exactly how, <clears throat> Tori, that's how it works. <laughs> Nine people involved in the making of the movie died during or slightly after the movie was filmed. This included Linda Blair's grandfather who had worked security on the set and as a special effects expert. Don't, I don't like this. Also, actor Jack McGowan, who played Burke Dennings and actor Vasiliki Mal- Maleros, who played the mother of Father Karras, both died while the movie was in post-production. Their characters also died in the movie. I'm getting so many chills. I'm like, I don't like this. I cannot watch this fucking movie ever. You are such a baby. (laughs) I don't like it. I don't like it. Also, the man who played Father Karras, Jason Miller's son, was almost killed when a motorcycle hit him. Jesus. Oh, the actress who played the demonic voice of Pazuzu had a family tragedy when her son killed his wife and children and then himself. Jesus. But also Pazuzu, we're doing the devil you I know. know. That's I know. coming full circle, isn't it? Needless it is. to say, the fact that Paul Bateson was an unknown murderer was just another drop in the bucket for the exorcist. I hope Friedkin is fucking proud of himself. That's all I have to say. Do you think that he wanted this to happen? <laughs> He's trying to make a fun, scary movie. Fun? Yes, fun. I, I request you use a different word, but... <laughs> A lot of people find him fun, Torella. I guess so. Oof. Okay. All right, so back to Paul Bateson. Unfortunately, this role didn't mean that Paul Bateson's life was turning around. In fact, his drinking increased after, and it became such a significant issue that he was fired from his job at NYUMC in 1975. So that's what, like a year? Because he, didn't he get there in, what, 74? I guess. I I honestly can't remember the, I mean, I'll go back We've just, we've had so many scares since then. We've covered so much, I know. 
Bateson began working odd jobs but couldn't keep them for very long. He worked cleaning apartments, repairing lighting, running messages for a liquor store, as well as working at a pornographic theater called Big Top. Ew. Uh, yeah. I don't like that name. I don't like that name at all. That bothers me a lot. Ugh. Yeah. Bateson was a regular on Christopher Street where the majority of gay bars were, apparently. He also marched in the gay pride parade. He held a sign that said, Anita sucks. Bateson didn't hide his sexuality and was very aware of the political issues regarding homosexuality, as well as the people in politics who were for and against these issues. Who the fuck is Anita? Yeah, I have no idea. Oh, okay. Anita Dick? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. It's an Anita Dick. <laughs> While he worked at Big Top, he was reportedly tender, warm, and loving but he had serious issues that would end up causing him to get fired. He would find pills on the floors of the theater and take them. Oh, that gets you fired? Safe. I don't know. But it also reminds me of on Elf when Buddy finds the gum underneath the thing. Oh. Like, so excited and starts chewing. <laughs> Gross. That's what he's doing. I know it is, but like, you know, just find pills on the floor and then just, okay, let's see what happens now. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's definitely not safe at all, but I'm just like, he's not, it's not like he's stealing them from people. They're on the floor. They left them like yeah. garbage. I don't know. But maybe he's taking them at work and that's a problem. I don't know. Yeah. A colleague said that ultimately he was fired because he couldn't seem to handle directions and that anything he started, he would get distracted and lose focus on the task. That might be because of the pills. Then once he got back to the task, he can remember how to finish it. Jeez. He tried to stay sober and attended AA meetings for a time. He even carried a card saying that he was an alcoholic. But by 1977, Bateson said that he was drinking a quart of vodka a day. His drinking got so out of hand that his social life took a real hit and he became pretty isolated except for when he was out at bars at night, which is how he met Addison Barrel on September 14th, 1977. Now let's talk about what happened after the murder. Eight days after Bateson murdered Beryl, he called the Village Voice to talk to Arthur Bell, a journalist and gay rights activist. However, Bell wasn't there. But Bateson called a few times that day trying to catch him. Finally, he annoyed the lady who'd been taking the calls enough that she called Bell herself to let him know that this nut called the office twice claiming he killed Beryl, quote unquote. She told him that the man was calling back in about five minutes and asked Bell if she should give the man his number. Within 10 minutes, Bell received a call from an anonymous man who said he'd read the story Bell had written for the Village Voice about the murder of Ad Addison Barrel, and he liked it, but there was one issue he had. The front page article said that his killer was a psycho. The caller insisted that he was not a psycho. He told Bell, I'm gay and needed money and I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not a psychopath. What, <laughs> what is it about, like BTK did stupid stuff like this, you know? Mm-hmm. I got I to gotta get you corrected because I need my reputation or persona in the media to be correct. Like, Well, and I think that it's there's a couple things going on here. So one, image is everything. Reputation is everything. They need to be seen a certain way in the media or to everybody else because that's how narcissists, psychopaths, sociopaths, everything like that, that's how they are. Image is everything. Two, I think it's a way to flex how... Like, oh, they don't they don't know it's me, but I'm gonna call and I'm gonna make these statements so it like get helps them get the rocks off about like being so close but not caught. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like it's I feel like it's one of those things like, okay, this is a stretch, but 
bear with me. Okay. So if you have a crush on somebody, maybe you like go home with them or whatever. And you're like, I don't really care about them. I don't really care about them. But then you try to find ways like, what can I do to call or text them just to be on their radar still, but they don't have... like You really don't have any mm. reason to call, but you just need to like... Yeah. Get the attention. I feel like. Hey, did I leave my um? Did I leave my sock there? I can't find it. Yeah, it's the exactly. last place I saw it. Yeah, I really love that one bobby pin, and I think I left it at your house. <laughs> yeah, it's my favorite bobby pin. Okay, it's a yeah. lucky bobby pin. Exactly. Bell spoke to the man for twenty minutes, and the caller told Bell that one day he'd be able to write a book called "I Talk to a Killer." That's gross. I don't like that at all. Mm-mm. Ugh. The caller told Bell everything that happened the night of Beryl's murder and explained that he'd wanted a real relationship and he hated to be rejected. He told Bell that he also needed money. The caller would tell Bell about the wife he has in Berlin who has a very low mentality and doesn't understand about his being gay and a 14-year-old son. And there is no evidence to confirm or disprove any of this information. Yeah, nobody's ever found evidence that he was married to a woman or had a son or anything like that. But I mean, he could have been saying that to like throw people off. Mm-hmm. Bell said that the caller was quote unquote eager to talk and was quote unquote boastful, but showed remorse. The caller also said he couldn't tell Bell his name or anything because he wouldn't be able to practice anymore and he'd lose his license. When Bell got off the phone with the supposed killer, he went straight to the police. He spoke to Lieutenant John Yuckness. That's a horrible yes. name. If that's how you pronounce it, that sucks. Yeah. Eukness? Maybe. Who believed that this might be the most credible lead they had. The caller knew things that only the killer would know, like what kind of credit card was stolen, and he cleared up something that was confusing police. At the scene, there was a white substance on the floor and actually wasn't what you would have thought. It's like if you're going back to super bad days and you're like, I thought semen was going to be everywhere. Semen everywhere. You're going to walk in every crime scene. It's going to be semen everywhere. That's not what happened. The caller told Bell that this was Crisco, which turned out to be true. The detectives hadn't been able to identify it until the caller told them. What, because of the frying pan? I would guess. I don't know. Gosh. Bell was given emergency numbers to call and was told that a patrol car would drive by his house every 30 minutes. Bell even had a neighbor come spend the night. Four detectives took him home around 7 p.m. and the editor of The Village Voice, Marianne Partridge, came as well. Then the phone rang around 11.30 p.m. This wasn't the original caller, though. In his article, Bell referred to this caller as Mitch to protect his identity. Mitch told Bell that he had a friend that he'd met at St. Vincent's Hospital that past July. He told Bell that his friend was an alcoholic who he thought was trying to get sober. Mitch said that his friend was an unemployed x-ray technician and that he called Mitch the morning after Addison Barrel's murder. The man told him what he'd done and gave him details. Mitch gave Bell the friend's name, Paul Bateson, but he thought this might not be his real name. He said that Bateson had used the name Johnny Johnson in the past. Uh, now he's coming after Tim McGraw, don't take the girl. Oh yeah, Tommy Thompson. I think that, I don't know if Johnny Johnson, but it just reminded me of it. <laughs> it really does, yeah. Take Johnny Johnson, take Tommy, take Thompson. Tommy Thompson. Yeah, take I used to work at a by. salon and there was a guy named Tommy Thompson and he came in like every four weeks like clockwork to get his hair done. And every time he walked in the door, it would just be like, Johnny's daddy was taking him fishing. (laughs) Every time he walked in the door, I'm like, no, stop it. I love it. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Mitch also said that he's not surprised that Bateson would call to confess. He said that Bateson was like a schoolboy and would go directly to the teacher when he did something wrong to get his hand slapped. That's interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. Mitch said that Bateson enjoyed punishment. He also said that Bateson was involved in SM and that his favorite topic of conversation was himself. I believe all of these things. What is he going to talk about when it comes to himself? Like, he's not working. No. He, Maybe he just talks about how much alcohol he drinks and what his favorite drink is. I don't know. When Bell told the police about the call with Mitch, they said that he'd already spoken with them. Because of Mitch's visit, the police had gone to Paul Bateson's home, but he wasn't there at the time. They were unsure if Bateson was really their man because he didn't have any criminal record. Mitch was brought in and questioned regarding what he knew and then released. Police were finally able to catch up to Bateson at his home and brought him in. When they showed up to his house, they asked him, if he knew why they were there. And his response was, for killing that guy in the village. So <laughs> he's like, yes, I'm going to get in big trouble this time. <laughs> yeah, it was so weird. Bateson gave a full handwritten confession. He was arrested and charged with second degree murder. Lieutenant uh, Yuckies, I don't know, made sure to call the Beryl family to let them know before <laughs> it got out in the press. And Beryl's little sister answered. She told the lieutenant that the arrest was a small consolation. I mean, yeah, sure. It's like, yeah, yeah, nobody wins. Bateson would plead not guilty despite having confessed in full. He spent his time between... Surprise, surprise. Exactly. He spent his time between arrest and trial at Rikers Island. Okay, now I'm sure that even if, even though he confessed in full, let's say that he didn't like take back his, recant his confession or whatever, there would be a trial anyway. But if we know anything about Bateson is that he loves to, he loves to be punished. So it does not surprise me at all that he recants it because he's like, well, I didn't do that just so people will be like, let's draw this out as long as possible. Yeah, he wants to get all this information out about himself, right? Like, yeah, yeah. He exactly. needs it to be about him for as long as possible. Right. Okay, so in the beginning, we said this may not have been his only murder, right? So Mm -hmm. there are other murders in the area that many believe that Paul Bateson was responsible for. 
Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not confirmed, so we'll, we'll get denied, into that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. While at Rikers, Bateson was apparently eager to get more things off his conscience. He confessed to killing other men purely for fun. He also claimed to have dismembered these men. While it may seem like crazy talk or like he's trying to sound like a badass to people in prison, there were actual cases that were unsolved that sounded eerily similar. At this time, police were investigating a string of murders that were being called the bag murders or the cuppy murders. Cuppy stands for circumstances undetermined pending police investigations. Hmm. Cuppy um, is cute. There is a movie or TV show or something where there's a little like doll that they have that's like super sweet. It's like, you know, like you have a blankie when you're little or whatever. And the thing is called Cuppy. Gosh, what is it from? I, I think I see it. Yeah, I think I've heard of that. It sounds familiar. Yeah. God, I can't get uh, Don't Take the Girls out of my head. That's like all I can think about. Just in the background, it's just like, it's like when I go um, snorkeling and I can only the whole time hear Under the Sea on The Little Mermaid. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Just like as soon as my face goes into the water in my brain, it's like, like the whole time. (sighs) Soundtracks, man, they're wild. Okay. Between 1975 and 1976, there had been at least six gay men murdered. These men were unidentified, but were f- all found in similar circumstances. All six men were murdered in an unknown manner and then dismembered after they were dead. Their body parts were put in black trash bags and dumped into the Hudson River. These bags washed up on shore near the World Trade Center and on Jersey Shore. Oh, God. Can you imagine being the person that's like, I finally got to come, you know, to see the World Trade Center? At that time. Right. And then you're like, there's some trash bags. Oh my God, it's horrible. I cannot. Mm -mm. While the police didn't know who these men were or how they were murdered, they were all identified as gay based on clothing and tattoos. How? Uh, (laughs) That's what I'm saying. So Sloan said, no, they weren't dressed in shirts that said I'm gay. Because I'm like, yeah. What were they wearing that said they were gay? Yeah. It's not like they were wearing a miniskirt that totally told everybody that they're sluts. <laughs> yeah. But the clothes they were wearing were linked back to a specific clothing shop in Greenwich Village that apparently catered specifically to gay men. At least one of the men had a specific tattoo that tied him to the gay S&M scene at that time. Unless you're like branded with I'm gay. I, I just... I, I, yeah, I don't... Okay. I don't get it, but okay. That's interesting, yeah, that you could look at, and this is, sounds absolutely morbid and horrible, but that you could look at a dismembered body and be like, well, that... That one is gay. That makes absolutely no sense at all. They don't know who these men are. Have they not been reported missing? Right. Oh, man. I don't know. That's just so ridiculous. And I was joking about the miniskirts. We like to joke about how fucking ridiculous it is that yeah. women get labeled as hoes because of what they're wearing. Yes, exactly. There was a report that the bags the men were found in were traced back to NYUMC by the writing on the bags, but there was never any solid proof of this, and more recent research has shown that this is untrue. I actually saw that in a lot of places as well. Okay, but they are willing to be like, well, we're not really sure about the the writing on the bags, but we're 100% sure that they were totally gay (laughs) based on what they were wearing in their tattoos. Like, I don't... Are we just picking and choosing what we find to be fact and fic... I don't... Okay, okay, okay. Okay, so Tori, I'm not trying to be weird, but if your body was found in garbage bags, yeah, 
the police would be like, well, this is a Spice Girl, obviously. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. What? How the fuck are you going to know any... You don't know. Like, you don't know. Yeah. Stupid. Yeah. The police suspected that the murderer might have medical expertise based on the way the men were dismembered. Bateson would have medical training as an x-ray technician. Paul Bateson... I buy that. Yeah. Paul Bateson's claim of being the murderer of these six men was investigated, and the investigators publicly suggested that Bateson was the serial killer. But since there was little evidence and all they had was his confession, Paul Bateson was never charged with these murders. In fact, they are still considered unsolved. Do we not have IDs on any of these men? I I have no idea. I mean, that is very sad. Mm Mm-hmm. Arthur Bell came to visit Bateson in prison. He reported that Bateson said that jail was at least helping to keep him sober, and he regretted missing the new season of the Joffrey Ballet in New York. Well, boo fucking who? Joffrey? I, I don't know anything about ballets, so I'm sorry if I don't say that right. <laughs> Another visitor was director William Friedkin, who had employed Bateson as an extra on The Exorcist. Friedkin said that Bateson confessed to Beryl's murder and that he was thinking about confessing to the quote-unquote bag murders to reduce the penalty. However, no record of this deal exists and there is no proof that the police ever made such a deal with Bateson. During Paul Bateson's trial, his attorney tried to have the confession he gave suppressed, of course. He claimed that Bateson's confession had been given while he was drunk and that Bateson had not been read his Miranda rights. Prosecutor William Hoyt called Bateson a psychopath and made sure to slip in that he believed Bateson to be guilty of the bag murders. Is that allowed? I have no idea. Like, if he's not been charged with them, there's no definitive proof to connect him to it. Are you allowed to talk about that in a trial? Yeah, I have. I mean, I I would guess it'd be up to the judge, but that seems unheard of to me. Yeah. He claimed that Bateson confessed to his friend Richard Ryan. Bateson publicly denied being the murderer, and the judge said that the connection to the bag murders was, quote-unquote, too ephemeral to have any connection to this case. On March 5th, 1979, Bateson's trial ended in a conviction. He was given 20 years to life in prison. He became eligible for parole in 1997, and in 2003, after 24 years and three months, Paul Bateson was released from prison and placed on parole. In 2008, his parole ended. Paul Bateson Mm. seemingly vanished after that. He disappeared into obscurity upon his release and no one knows where he lived from there on or if he was or is even alive. It's thought that he's most likely dead. He'd be 80 by now, which isn't, you know, that's getting up there, but certainly not out of the realm of possibility he'd still be alive. But there was a reported death of a Paul F. Bateson in the Social Security Death Index. This Paul Bateson was born on August 24th, 1940 with a Pennsylvania social security number. He was reported to have died on September 15th, 2012. In 2017, Netflix released the show Mindhunter that covers the FBI profiling unit and the birth of criminal psychology and profiling. In the show, the FBI agents interview serial killers and Charles Manson, who is not a serial killer, to gain a better understanding of the criminal mind. On season two, episode six, that was released on August 15th, 2019, the agents interview Paul Bateson to look into the relationship between sex and violence. It's not a long scene or hugely significant, much like his appearance in The Exorcist. And uh, Sloan wanted to end it with shade. So if you want to see that episode, (laughs) it's Mindhunter season two, episode six. And apparently blink and you'll miss it. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but the guy they got to play him is much more attractive than his real... 
Well, you person. are welcome, Paul Bateson. Yeah, exactly. Good for you. I feel like they do such a good job of casting people on that show. I haven't seen every episode of Mindhunter because personally, I'm not super into scripted crime shows. But I did like what I've seen and I think that they do a great job on it. So yeah, I think their casting has been really well done. So yeah, so that's yes. it. I agree, agree. That's the case. He's uh, well probably donezo by now. So yeah. I mean, well, it, it well, sounds well. like he, I mean, obviously he didn't reoffend after he got out. Which is good. Yeah. But it just seems like, I don't know. I mean, I, yeah, I guess he didn't reoffend. I just, I feel like he's a person that, I mean, maybe, but if he got treatment, I mean, maybe a big part of it was the drugs and alcohol, you know? Yeah, I was going to say maybe being out of the game for 24 and a half years or something and him not being able to touch any of that stuff anymore and then getting right. out as an older man, maybe it's just yeah. something that he lost interest in or didn't, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe he just made some changes and yeah, got some integrity and stuff like that. Yeah. Welcome back to the mixtape. It's our spooky Halloween version. Are you going to do this every yep. time? Yep, yep. Okay. And you better believe all day on Halloween, I'm just going to be like, woo! All day. Ugh. Yep. Ugh. Yuck. Yuck. Let's get this party started. Let's get it started. So this is the Candyman, Ronald Clark O'Brien, not Dean Coral. Okay. Different Candyman. I was confused, yes. Yeah, and I could totally understand that confusion. This takes place Halloween night, 1974, in Pasadena, Texas. Ronald Clark O'Brien and a neighbor took their four children out for a night of trick-or-treating. Eight-year-old Timothy O'Brien was dressed in his Planet of the Apes costume and eager to gather as much candy as possible. When the rain began, the families decided to head back to their separate homes and prepare for bed. Timothy asked his father if he could have some of his candy before bed. Ronald told Timothy that he could pick one piece. Timothy picked his big pixie stick, a 21-inch long straw filled with sweet and sour powdered candy. I remember those big pixie sticks. Heck yes, I do. They were I like the mother too. load. Yes, the packaging was plastic and you would undoubtedly suck on it for too long and get the end all gunky and then you <laughs> yeah. cut it down. Yep. To get to the rest of the pixie stick. Yes, I pixie sticks and fun dip are two of my like guilty pleasure candy loves. Oh my gosh, I love it. Yeah. I know. I'm His, a Reese's girl at heart, but pixie sticks and yeah, fun dip. Sure, sure. Yeah. His father helped him open it and he washed it down with Kool-Aid. Soon after, Timothy was dead. Investigators believe that he'd ingested poisoned Halloween candy. The community and police were stunned, wondering how someone could intentionally poison an innocent child. Within a week, Timothy's father was arrested and charged with capital murder of his son in the attempted murder of four other children. Oh, Lord. Good God. This is awful. Thank you to Madison for the research. I am a little like, holy fuck, because trick-or-treating is coming up. Although, we're just going to a friend's house that the kids go to school with because our neighborhood's not doing trick-or-treating this year because of COVID. They're just like, if anybody wants to do it, they're just putting out like stakes in the grass and hanging little cellophane wrapped bags, but they're six feet apart. So nobody will be close to each other when they pick them up. 
And only some people are doing it. So we're just going to do something else. So the likelihood of the kids encountering just a random person is almost zero, but that's not even what happened in this case. So yeah, it's so scary. Super scary. So terrible. Yeah, but we got to go back. Mm-hmm. We got to go back because we don't... We got to go back to the beginning. That's just all we, we got to do. Yes, we have to figure out how this shit happened. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Ronald Clark O'Brien was born on October 19th, 1944. Not very much is published regarding his childhood. However, O'Brien was just 30 years old when his son died. O'Brien lived in Deer Park, Texas with his wife. Dane- I'm going to say Daneen. Yeah. Yeah. Daneen and his two children, Timothy, eight years old, and Elizabeth, five years old. O'Brien worked as an optician at Texas State Optical in Houston. He was also a deacon at the Second Baptist Church where he sang in the choir. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm somebody's getting thrown out the window. <laughs> well, this is very Dennis Rader, isn't it? I mean, yes, very. Halloween 1974, the O'Brien family traveled the short distance to Pasadena, Texas to have dinner at a family friend's home. The Bates and the O'Briens were friends from church and had arranged for the fathers to take Timothy, Elizabeth, and the two Bates children, Mark and Kimberly, out to trick-or-treat for after dinner. They set out that evening, hoping to avoid the rain and have a fun evening. As the group made their way around the neighborhood, Jim would stand on the sidewalk while Ronald would escort the children up to each door and retrieve their candy. At 4112 Done Rail, there was a wall that made it difficult to see the front door from the sidewalk. There were no lights on at the house. Ronald, still in his white optician lab coat, walked with the children to the door while they rang the doorbell. The children grew impatient as no one answered the door, so they scurried down the driveway and on to the next house. Jim Bates recalls that Ronald came out from behind the wall and down the driveway a few minutes later, carrying five large pixie sticks. (sighs) 
Okay. If there's no lights on, that means either they're not home or they're not participating. Like, leave them alone. Yeah. It's a telltale sign to GTFO. Exactly. Like, no, I don't want to see your kid's costume. Okay. Okay, dude. Yeah. And it's every, everyone's right as a citizen to have their light turned off if they don't want to participate in Halloween. It's fine. Exactly. And he's like, you've got rich neighbors. Look at what they're giving out. And I guess pixie sticks were like, at least the big ones are a big deal then. Maybe they were new or something. I don't know. I mean, maybe. I don't know. I feel like back then, they would people would get like a big... Well, I don't know about back then. But when we were little, people would get like a bag of pixie sticks and you'd get like one or two. So the big ones probably cost half of what a bag would cost. So you know what I mean? Like right, you would right. have to buy way more of those. Yeah, that's true. And they are more expensive. He held on to the candy until they finished trick-or-treating and headed back home. Once home, he gave each of the four children a pixie stick, leaving one remaining. Another group of children from church knocked on the door of the Bates house. Ronald gave the last pixie stick to an 11-year-old boy, Whitney Parker. Finally home and ready for bed, Timothy begged his parents to let him have some candy before going to sleep. They relented, letting him choose one piece of candy, and Timothy chose the pixie stick. He had trouble getting the small staple out of the top of the straw and getting powder to come out. Ronald rolled the straw in his hands to loosen the powder and instructed <sighs> and instructed Timothy to lean his head back and open his mouth. Ronald poured the powder into his son's mouth. Normally a sweet, slightly sour treat, Timothy complained that the powder tasted bitter. Ronald brought him a glass of Kool-Aid to rinse the taste out of his mouth, and with that, he went to bed. Within a few minutes, Timothy raced to the bathroom and began vomiting violently, crying out in pain and convulsing on the floor. Oh my God, I'm going to cry. This kid is eight years old. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Trusting his parents for everything. Uh, like, yes. With everything that he has. I just, I fucking cannot. A rookie police officer, Jesse Zeziger, made it to the O'Brien's house before Timothy was rushed to the hospital. He remembered seeing him laying on the bathroom floor dry heaving. Timothy died en route to the hospital that evening. Oh my God. It was quickly found that Timothy had died from cyanide poisoning. Being that the pixie stick was the last thing that he consumed, investigators were able to conclude that the candy had been laced with cyanide. The pathologist who tested the candy found that it contained enough cyanide to kill two adults. Oh my God. Once Timothy had eaten the candy, his fate had been sealed. Cyanide blocks the body's ability to produce a source of energy that's used to perform natural functions. Muscles like your diaphragm and your heart cannot work very long without this source of energy. This eventually leads to cardiac arrest. Research says that cyanide poisoning acts very quickly and that the victim will experience a very painful death. Ingestion of cyanide has been reported to leave a bitter taste, which is likely why Timothy thought the candy tasted off. That poor kid. He was like, something's not right here. Mm-hmm. And he was so excited because I would have been excited about a big old pixie stick like oh, that. Oh my God, for sure. And to and for his father to tell him to lean his head back to make sure he could get as much powder as he could out. Exactly. And his dad, obviously, knowing what right. he had done and what was in that pixie stick. Fucking asshole. Mm-hmm. Investigators knew they didn't have time to waste. They needed to find out if any other children had ingested the toxic candy. Police canvassed the neighborhood and streets surrounding the Bates house, knocking on doors and asking their parents to bring their children's candy to the station. Police were able to find four more pixie sticks that had been poisoned. One in the bag of Elizabeth O'Brien. And she was how old? Two? She was young. I can't remember. Five? She was five, I think. Jeez. 
one in each of the Bates children's bags and one belonging to 11-year-old Whitney Parker. None had been consumed. However, it was reported that Whitney fell asleep with the pixie stick in his hand, unable to remove the staple from the straw. Thank God. Mm-hmm. On November 2nd, Timothy O'Brien was laid to rest. His father sang a solo at the service, closing it by saying, I have peace knowing that Tim is in heaven now. I want to punch him in the face. Yeah, I hope you do. And that kid, I know. And that you did this. Right. And to get up there and, oh man. Oh man, I'm getting mad. And that kid, Whitney Parker, went to church with him. He's like, hey, I go mm-hmm. to church with you. Like, give me the pixie stick. Yeah. Why kill right, him? Exactly. I don't understand. I mean, I obviously, like I don't that. understand why I kill any of them, but later we kind of get his motive. But he doesn't yeah. get anything from Whitney's death. Police spent time out walking around the Bates neighborhood with Ronald, trying to pinpoint which house distributed the poisoned candy. He initially had a difficult time remembering which house he had got the candy from, and after questioning, no neighbors admitted to giving out pixie sticks on Halloween night. Finally, Ronald brings them to Courtney Melvin's house. This was the same house that the group visited on Halloween night that had no lights on. He told police that after the children ran off from the house, a man's arm reached out and handed Ronald the five pixie sticks. He did not recall ever seeing a face. However, after a few phone calls, police were able to confirm that Mr. Melvin was working Halloween night as an air traffic controller and did not return home until 11 p.m. At least 200 people were able to corroborate his alibi. In addition, Jim Bates said that he didn't ever recall seeing or hearing the door open at the Melvin household. As police hit a dead end with Mr. Melvin, they were unsure of where to look next. And also, if somebody just barely creaks the door open and shoves their hand out and is like, here, give this to your kids, I'm pretty sure I'm throwing that shit in the garbage. Like, that's weird. It is weird. I just do not understand the... Because, I mean, I guess you, as a killer, you got to do what you got to do, right, to protect yourself. But you're going to really try to implicate some stranger, like random, innocent stranger in this and be like, oh, that guy did it. Right. I was not even at home... It's just so shitty. It's just so fucking shitty. Yeah, because what if the police had not been able to corroborate his alibi? What if he was just like, I was at my sister's or whatever? Yeah. Mm -hmm. On November 4th, an insurance agent contacted the Pasadena police and informed them that on October 3rd, Ronald had paid cash for a $20,000 life insurance policy on each of his children. The agent tried to steer him towards a more appropriate policy, which would yield a smaller death benefit, but would have established a $25,000 cash fund for when the children reach the age of 23. I think that's what we have for our kids. It's like, Mm. yeah, it's like a fund where once they turn a certain age, they can cash it out or they can roll it into their own life insurance policy if they want, but it essentially gives them a head start. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. But he didn't want that. And why is that? Because he didn't believe his children were going to make it to that. Yeah, exactly. And he was going to make damn sure of that. Exactly. Oh, man. Ronald was extremely adamant that he wanted the initial policy that yielded a large death benefit and it was not necessary for his wife to sign off on it. Ronald Ronald also requested that the agent store the paperwork in his private office. Upon further investigation into Ronald's financials, it was found that he was over $100,000 in debt. His car was close to being repossessed and he had defaulted on several bank loans. Even more disturbing, it was found that Ronald had taken out yet another life insurance policy on Timothy and Elizabeth. 
In January of 74, he'd taken out $10,000 policy on each of his children. This brought the grand total of money he'd receive in the event of his children's death to approximately $60,000. Ronald's wife denied knowing anything about the life insurance policies. On the morning following Timothy's death, Ronald contacted the insurance companies inquiring about collecting the money owed to him. Police felt confident that Ronald was behind the poisoning of his son, but needed to make sure they had an airtight case. They found that on August 24th, he'd attempted to obtain cyanide at his place of business, but was unsuccessful. Dude. You are so stupid. <laughs> like, hello, um, can I buy one rock of cyanide, please? Yes. <laughs> how much, just asking, I don't want to know for me personally, but for a friend, how much cyanide would kill two small children named Timothy <laughs> and Elizabeth? Yeah, but it's not it's not related to anybody that you know or that I know really. It's just my friend was just wondering, no, that's no. all. Yes. Yes. While taking a class at Harris County Community College, Ronald badgered the chemist about the effects of cyanide and the amount required to kill certain animals, like certain size animals. In October, Ronald had tried yet again to obtain cyanide at a chemical supply company in Houston. The salesman he spoke with remembered that Ronald left when he told him that was that the smallest amount they sold was five pounds. In a search of Ronald's house, they found small pieces of plastic from the pixie sticks where he had opened them, filled the Jesus, filled the top two inches with cyanide, and then resealed them. So there was absolutely no chance that these kids were not going to die. Mm-mm. The top two inches is just straight fucking cyanide. Mm-hmm. God. On November 5th, 1974, just five days after his son died, Ronald Clark O'Brien was arrested and charged with one count of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. Ronald was held in prison until his trial in June of 1975. He continued to plead not guilty on all charges. He claimed that because the candy was given to several children, it must have come from somewhere else. Okay. the only thing he's basing that on? (laughs) Exactly. Name the children that, the many different children that it, was distributed to his children, the two kids that went with them and one kid that ran into them that can physically say, I got a pixie stick from this man. Exactly. It didn't go to the whole fucking neighborhood, you dumb bitch. Yeah. How does that make sense for your argument? It it just doesn't. I mean, you miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. I just, (laughs) (laughs) this was like a Hail Mary, like, hang on now. It could have been anybody. Even though you found all the shit in my house and I've been trying to get cyanide at least once a week for eight years. Yes. And people have pointed me out of a lineup. (laughs) Yeah. It had to have been somebody else. (laughs) It took the jury only 45 minutes to find him guilty and another 71 minutes to sentence him to death. He spent the rest of his days on death row at OB Ellis Unit. Ronald's first execution date was set for August 8th, 1980. His attorney successfully petitioned for a stay of execution. A second date was scheduled for May 25th, 1982. Again, the execution was postponed. Judge Michael McSpadden scheduled a third execution date for October 31st, 1982, the eighth anniversary of Timothy's death, and he offered to personally drive Ronald to the death chamber. Wow. I know. Yeah. Judge McSpadden ain't playing it. Mm -mm. Like he's like, no. You're going to go down. Right? In fact, I'll drive you there. I don't got shit else to do today. I'll clear my schedule. Exactly. I'll clear my schedule. (laughs) 
He was going to be the first Texas inmate executed by lethal injection. The Supreme Court then delayed this date in order to give Ronald time to seek a new trial. A new execution date was scheduled for March. His lawyer, of course, appealed the date again, claiming that the death penalty was cruel and unusual punishment. Hmm. I'm sorry. I have many things wrong with this. Firstly, who decided that it was cruel and unusual punishment for Timothy to be murdered by his father with cyanide that is the most cruel, or not the most, but it's a very cruel way to die. Exactly. It's a horrible way to go. You did that to your child. Your child. Yeah. Oh my God. For money. For money. Your child. I and Ronald's, Ronald is being a little bitch and can't just handle the punishment that's being handed to him. Yeah. You made your bed. Now you got to fucking lay in it, you dumb bitch. Yeah, exactly. Hate him. Hate him. Hate him. Hate him. Hate him. Hate him. I know. I know. Thankfully, a federal judge denied this appeal. On March 31st, 1984, just after midnight, Ronald Clark O'Brien was put to death by lethal injection. At his request, his final meal was a T-bone steak, salad with tomatoes, eggs, and French dressing, iced tea, fries, saltines, Boston cream pie, peas, corn, and rolls. These were his last words. What is about to transpire in a few moments is wrong. However, we as human beings do make mistakes and errors. I'm sorry. This execution is one of those wrongs, yet doesn't mean our whole system of justice is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also, to anyone who I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask for your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. I am about to throw I don't I don't even have anybody to throw out the window is the problem. This is making me yeah. so mad. Somebody's getting thrown out the window oh or every belonging that I have in this room is Exactly. I'm going to throw my computer out, my desk out, and I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us respectively as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts I love you one and all. God bless you all and may God's blessings be always yours. Okay. 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 Mm. Okay. <laughs> so, um, okay. So his execution is wrong. And whether or not you are for or against the death penalty, he not once apologizes for murdering his son and trying to murder other people. Mm-mm. Never wants to see say anything. He's just like, this is wrong. I need to be out of here. This is all about me. Yeah. Oh, and I'll pray for you. Yeah, exactly. I forgive all of you who have done this terrible thing to me. Like, but that's the thing. He has to maintain his innocence. Yeah. It's just so sad. I I feel bad for him because I've heard hell is a terrible place to be. Yeah. I'll just say that. Mm-hmm. Throughout his imprisonment and up until his execution, Ronald maintained his innocence, never admitting that he was responsible for the death of his son. In an interview prior to execution, when asked if he would ever change his proclamation of innocence, he said, no, why should I? It's the truth. When you consider victims, the victim of this crime actually turns out to be me. Oh my God. What a piece of shit. Are you kidding me right now? I wonder what his wife did. Did she stay with him? Did she stand by him? I don't know. I hope she didn't stay with him because he is a fucking psycho. I could not be with somebody who says that about our child's death. Like, right. actually, I'm the one. And 
I mean, the the evidence is damning, obviously, right? I mean, he didn't get an appeal. He didn't, he wasn't found not guilty. He wasn't acquitted. Obviously, the 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 evidence is there. But let's just say you believe his innocence. And then you hear somebody say that, like, well, obviously I'm the true victim here. Right. But but bitch, did you die? But did you die? <laughs> right. Exactly. I um, mean, eventually, yes. But still. Eventually, yeah. But yeah, did did you Con- like, as long as they do it right, lethal injection is just like going to sleep and just not waking up. Right. He caused his son to go through absolute torture before he died. Eight mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. <sighs> so sad. And if he had, if he, if he had his way, he would have been responsible for for other deaths as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred percent. And he would have been fine with that. Yeah. During his execution, hundreds of demonstrators gathered outside shouting trick-or-treat and showering anti-death penalty demonstrators with candy. O'Brien quickly became known as the Candyman. While Ronald's actions only physically hurt one person, the effects of his actions were felt around the world. He's the man that ruined Halloween for the whole world, said Mike Hinton, one of the prosecutors who helped secure a guilty verdict and send O'Brien to death row. There's a lot of leftover feelings and concerns among parents and who were just children then. Bill Lanier, one of the investigators belonging to the Pasadena Police Department, who helped bring Ronald to justice, remembers him often. It affected me. Every Halloween, I think about him. He's a despicable man and his whole life was a lie. Okay, so now we're going to go through the legend of Tainted Halloween. While Timothy O'Brien's death was one of the most widely known stories of a child dying from tainted Halloween candy, it was not the first time that communities have been weary of Halloween treats, weary of the bags of treats that their children often brought home. On Halloween in 1964, two teenage girls went trick-or-treating around Salem Ridge Road in Greenlawn, a town in Long Island, New York. The girls remembered stopping at one house where an older lady joked with them that they were a bit too old to be out trick-or-treating. She dumped a handful of candy into the girls' bags and they continued on. Later that evening, one of the girls' mothers spread the candy out onto the kitchen table to survey it and found several arsenic pellets wrapped in napkins spread throughout the candy. What the hell? Oh my gosh. The teenager would have been old enough to read the word poison on the label. However, she feared that younger kids would not. The police were notified immediately, and after combing through other children's candy in surrounding areas, they found at least 19 of these arsenic pellets. They were quickly mm. able to trace them back to the older lady that the teenage girls had seen earlier in the evening, Helen File. Helen, a housewife, claimed it was simply a joke <laughs> that she only put them in the teenagers' bags because she felt like they were too old to be trick-or-treating. She had a 15 and 16-year-old son who were also out trick-or-treating. She was okay. So- Yeah, it's like, you guys go, but nobody else can. She was subsequently charged with two counts of child endangerment. Thankfully, no one ingested the arsenic. That is not a joke. That is not even Mm -mm. close to a joke. That is so ridiculous. You don't get to decide who's too old or not old enough to go trick-or-treating. And yeah, exactly. For somebody to have, that's the thing, to have their own children and then to do this to somebody else and disguise it as a joke. You know good and well, that's not a fucking joke. Exactly, especially little kids. like. They ate everything. And saying that she only gave it to the teenagers when there were like 19 other pellets found in the community. Exactly. Fess up, dude. Okay, bitch. Okay. 
There are millions of other stories spread from neighbor to neighbor, scaring parents and children alike into being extra cautious with their Halloween treats. A self-help columnist known as Dear Abby posted an article on Halloween in 1983 titled A Night of Tricks, Not Treats. In this article, Abby urged parents to be cautious of letting their children trick or treat. Somebody's child will become violently ill or die after eating poison candy or apple containing a razor blade. God, it's no longer safe to let your child eat treats that come from strangers. That's really sad. It is really sad. Several years later, Abby's sister, Ann Landers, posted an article titled, Twisted Minds Make Halloween a Dangerous Time. She echoed her sister's original post saying, in recent years, there have been reports of people with twisted minds putting razor blades and poison in taffy apples and Halloween candy. It's no longer safe to let your child eat treats that come from strangers. She literally echoed exactly what yeah. <laughs> like she said. She same. added a few words here and there. But I know. I was like, did I read that wrong? Like, am I in the wrong spot? No, it's, but nope, that's the what exact she said. Same thing. Yep. Law enforcement officers have offered services for after Halloween night when where they will x-ray the children's candy to ensure it hasn't been tampered with. There were no recorded attempts of sharp objects being placed into the candy until the year 2000 when James Joseph Smith of Minneapolis stuck needles into Snickers bars that he handed out to children. Only one child bit into a needle and the injury was so minor he didn't even have to go to the hospital. Many children have had medical emergencies while trick-or-treating which initially panicked communities but these were ultimately attributed to underlying health problems or ingestions of substances at their homes. In fact, there's no other documentation other than the O'Brien case that has shown an instance of Halloween candy being intentionally laced with harmful substances resulting in a child being hurt or killed. Shortly before he was executed, O'Brien was interviewed in prison. When told that he was accused of ruining Halloween for everybody, O'Brien simply responded, well, that's a matter of opinion. What a fucking dickhead! I know, it's like the... The gall of this man. No, bitch. You ruined Halloween for everybody. <laughs> exactly. Especially your son. God. I, I. Oh, my God. That makes me so sad. Like, I know. Ben's five. I, how do you... How are you not at- attached to your child and so, so strongly that you would do that to them when they're like five, eight? It's just... I just don't get it. Mm-mm. I don't get it. Well... Let this be a cautionary tale for everyone. Yeah, definitely be careful if you do take your kids trick-or-treating. Again, you know, at that time, they said they've never found any other candy to be laced, but you never know. It's 2020, man. So just stay vigilant out there. Yes. And at the time of Ronald O'Brien, they or before, they had never had any. So... Right. It's unfortunate. You never know when it could happen. Let's just all be cautious and careful, but still have fun. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, let's not let people win yeah. in those situations. But Well, we, we hope you guys hope. have a super duper safe and happy Halloween. Yes. Hopefully, it's you can do something fun, even though times are tough right now. Yeah. Thank you so much to Sloan, of course, again for researching. And thank you all for being a friend. We love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. All right, before we go today, we have got a couple of shout outs for some new patrons. Thank you to Aaron M., Kelsey K., Hillary H., Gary, Kim M., Ashley, 
Diana S. Kayla A. Ty B. Sherry D. Tabitha S. Heather R. Megan A. Carly C. Candace R. S. Mindy. Samantha B. Gina K. Tracy D. Bianca A. Vanessa K. And we want to give a quick feel better super soon to our BFF Kelly. She is super active in our hangout group, but she's having a surgery and we just hope you get better like ASAP, girl. We love you. Yes, we love you. Thank you so much. Bye. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this case. Connect with us on Instagram or Facebook to continue the conversation. Thanks for listening and we will meet you back here next week. Bye. The theme song for the show is created and composed by Stephen Toby. You can find more of Stephen's work on SoundCloud. Our logo was created by Sloan Williams of Sophisticated Crayon. You can find more of her work on Etsy. Visit us at killerqueenspodcast.com for merch and other info about the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.